Hello, uh, I'm Jennifer Grossman, and welcome to our latest episode of Ask the Atlas Society. I am so thrilled uh, to be here with um, Andrew Seifer of Turning Point. He is um, a regional director, and uh, Andrew, tell us a little bit about you and tell, because I, I have known you since as, no, as long as I've known Turning Point, which has been about for years and you guys have been around not that much longer. Um, so tell, tell us a little bit about you and, and, uh, and your, your path, what brought you to Turning Point? You know, it's, it's interesting that Turning Point found me. And so, you know, I, they found me and I found you about the same time, <laughs> four years ago, almost yeah. to the state. Um, so yeah, I, I'm originally from the Northwest. So I'm a Northwest baby, you know, born and raised Northwest. And then I came down to Arizona for schooling and then got really involved in local politics, whether worked for some political consulting firms, worked on many campaigns like any other political junkie. And then uh, Turning Point found me four years ago because they were looking for someone that had experience working with, um, community and junior colleges. Because when I moved down to Arizona with the intent to go to ASU, I went to the community college while I got my in-state residency to transfer over to avoid the absurd out-of-state tuition. And so I had a lot of experience at the junior, junior level college uh, with junior colleges when it came to extracurriculars and really, and then taking advantage of extracurriculars to get a full ride plus some to ASU. And so at that time, Turning Point was looking to, how do we get beyond just college, tier one college universities and into junior college, get into high school. So they brought me on kind of as an experiment at the time. Say, hey, can you take your previous experience in both politics and at the junior college and see if we can bring Turning Point, you know, Turning Point's message and have it stick and actually build off that. Fortunately, I was at very successful within Arizona's um, junior college system, which is the largest in the nation, actually. Oh. Uh, yeah, Maricopa Community College, uh, Maricopa Community College system is the largest community college system in the country. And so I was very successful and able to, you know, spread that out. And then um, from that point in my career, I was able to just work my way up into uh, Turning Point's leadership when it comes to our grassroots side of things. And now, actually, I am their field enterprise director, or what used to be called the national field director for Turning Point. Okay. Well, um, to me, one of the saddest things about the lockdown is uh, the fact that I don't get to see you and, and your smiling face, and you always have such great energy, and, and um, you're just a, a shining presence at, at the Turning Point events. And I know we also share um, an interest in Ayn Rand. So I understand you have a few questions. Sure do. Yeah, thank you for having me on. So one thing that Turning Point has done really well is that we're really good at enlarging the conservative libertarian movement per se through innovative messaging that really resonates with young voters, right? Youth voters or young college students, high school students. One thing I want to know is Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism um, what is a good way to explain objectivism to young Americans that will really resonate with them? Well, you know, being um, in high school, in, in college, or just being in that age, you're, you're in a transition. 
you're going from a time in your life when all of the decisions were, you know, made for you. What are you going to, what we're going to have for dinner? What time are you going to go to bed? What, you know, the rules are. And um, you're now transitioning to a time where you have to make decisions for yourself. And you're starting to question um, big questions like what, you know, what's the meaning of life? Why am I here on earth? How do I even know that I'm here, <laughs> you know, on earth? I'm being told by my professors, this is the truth, not how to think, but, but what to think. I'm being told uh, this is what you should do. This is what we expect by, my, by your parents. Um, you're being told by friends or by other young adults, this is how you need to act in order to be accepted or be popular, but you're being told by your girlfriend or your boyfriend, this is how, this is what you need to do for me to love you. Um, and how do you figure all of that out? And philosophy is really there to help you um, to figure it out. Uh, and it starts in terms of objectivism, it has five uh, branches. It has metaphysics, uh, what is the nature of reality. And in objectivism, um, it is, uh, reality exists. Um, as an objective absolute, it, there is the epistemology. How do how do I, how do I know? And in objectivism, it's reason, it's logic. That's how you know. Um, it is uh, ethics, and uh, it is a rejection of uh, self sacrifice. It is a ethics of of rational and benevolent self interest. Um, it is politics, and it is that is laissez faire politics and. Uh, laissez-faire economics, and that is a, you know, a big overlap with Turning Point. And then there are the um, aesthetics, and that is sort of a romantic realism that, that uh, you can see uh, on display in Ayn Rand's literature. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. The one that really stands out to me when I've been studying Ayn Rand was her, the, the focus on self-interest, mm -hmm. elfishness per se. You know, I, I, I found that really interesting in the fact because you're always I think in our society you're you're taught especially nowadays with, with social justice warriors and everything in the, in the PC culture you're taught not to be selfish to you know put yourself second and put everyone else first and so during this time of quarantine you know at this strange time students and young professionals have a lot of time on their hands and when it comes to thinking and really studying Ayn Rand's philosophy of self-interest and selfishness, how can they turn that to their advantage during this time when they have ample time to really apply it to their life? Um, well, first a word about selfishness, okay? Ayn Rand was a, a brilliant novelist. She was a philosopher, but um, she was also a provocateur. You know, she, and this is gonna be shocking, um, to some people, but she in some ways reminds me of my friend Ann Coulter. And though they have different uh, ideologies, um, they both uh, were excelled at, um, at using words uh, for shocking effect. And Ayn Rand did that because she really wanted to shock people out of conventional wisdom. So she didn't shy away from expressing her ideas in sometimes shocking fashion and talking about self-interest um, she didn't invent that idea. The founding fathers talked about your right to your life and your uh, right to pursue your happiness. But she chose to express that famously as uh, the virtue of selfishness. And intellectually, I think it's a good challenge to think through what it means to be selfless. 
uh, to always put others before yourself. But I would argue that um, the, the real estate, you know, the, the understanding of the word selfish uh, is is so ingrained in our language that it's it's almost um, impossible to just rebrand it as as rational self-interest. But we could try this exercise. I know a woman. I'm we we all know people like this. She happens to have married a very wealthy man. She um, she spends a lot of time, uh, you know, flaunting her her wealth. Um, and she's always asking for favors. She's always asking for asking for access. She's always asking uh, for other people to do things for her. And in the process, she's um, earned a reputation of being kind of selfish. And um, that you know reputation, I would say, is not you know in her rational self-interest. So, um, you know, in, in thinking, rational self-interest is about not uh, sacrificing yourself to others, but also not sacrificing others to yourself. So in this time of quarantine, um, I would say the, to, to be rationally self-interest would be to think through and think ahead, you know, where do you want to be um, in five years? and realize that the choice to do something is always is also the choice to not do something. Um, so thinking of how you're going to be using this, this time, thinking through what uh, kind of relationship do you want to be in in five years? What kind of job do you want to be in in five years? And what can you do right now to, to get there? Um, and uh, you, you may not know all of it, but you can start with a few basics and you can start by building up, you know, your mental muscles, you know, because that's what's going to take you through life. So um, don't, you know, keep fit, you know, but, but also maybe take this time to start building up uh, your, 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 your spiritual and your, your mental uh, facility in order to um, to put yourself in a better position to take advantage of future opportunities and uh, and then also just think about um, your your friends those people that that are in your life that you value um, and maybe evaluate you know whether or not those are the the right friends or are those people um, adding value to your life you know are they are they helping you to accomplish your um, objectives or are they uh you know a net drain and you may need to you know fire some of your friends to make room for for some new friends um but above all like if you haven't read ayn rand now now would be the time to to start and thank you to uh, turning point for making um the graphic novel available to students in uh in the activism kits and, and if there are students out there that are listening that would like to get a copy of that or like to get a copy of like the pocket guide to objectivism, let Andrew know or let me know. And yeah. You can go to the website and order an activism kit and it should be included. You know, it's yeah. funny, I, on, you know, Twitter is um, very active right now with everyone being <laughs> home. I saw a, a tweet by Anna Kendrick, you know, a movie star and she's, and, she posed the question, she's like, we always think to ourselves, if only I had more time, I would get all this done. The, you know, mm -hmm. I, and she tweeted it and just left it like that, obviously insinuating that she's not doing everything she thought she'd be able to do with all this ample time. You know, she's not making the most of her time 
that she has right now. And that kind of made me think, and that's why I posed the question to you is, so many of us think that way, especially college students, especially, you know, people, young professionals or anyone that just is very ambitious and active in their day-to-day -day life. This quarantine has disrupted our routine where it's given us that time to say, what should I be doing with my time, with this extra time that I have in my hands? How should I be making the most of it? So I really liked your, your take on that. Um, yeah, I mean, anyone who says they're, they're bored or that they have too much time on their hands, they're telling you a lot about, um, about themselves. Uh, and uh, this is, is an unprecedented time in some ways, but it's also um, a good practice for uh, the next crisis, whether it's going to be a national crisis, uh, whether it's going to be a, um, a natural disaster. I mean, I've lived through natural uh, disasters in my own life. Um, I've, you know, my house burned down in Malibu and I, I rebuilt it. And the, the house actually that you'll see in the graphic novel is the, is the house that, that I built. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't stand it at the time when people would say, well, you know, look at, look at the bright side. I'm, I mean, I wasn't looking for sympathy, but I was like, no, this was like a huge, <laughs> this was like a huge, huge loss. Um, I you know, was underinsured. It was like really very, very devastating. This is extraordinarily devastating um, for, for people who are losing their jobs um, or, or now kind of concerned that, that their, their income um, their livelihood and possibly, you know, their, their life is at risk. But what I would say is that one thing, you know, death and taxes are inevitable. And unfortunately, higher taxes may be uh, coming uh, as a result of, of this crisis and those seeking to take advantage of it in order to uh, expand government's role. And, and that, to me, is, is you know, the, the people who like to call the 1% greedy, but it's really the people that are, are seeking something for nothing, um, whether it, it's you know, in a position of power in government or um, by getting government uh, subsidies or government um, benefits uh, that are the truly greedy ones. But, um, but even a crisis, you know, you're going to have other crises. You're, you are going to, hopefully not, but you know, it, there, the likelihood is uh, we, we live in a rough and tumble uh, free market system. We, we want that creative destruction. And sometimes that destruction will hit you uh, and, and you will lose things that are of value to you. You will um, be struck with an illness. You will lose a parent. And so um, developing those skills right now to, to face that crisis that, that will come, um, because I, I guess I would say, one thing, and, and this is an important one for young people to remember, every bad situation can be made much worse. And even if you're going to be okay, you know, in this situation, um, you will face another crisis coming up. So um, just developing that, you know, that muscle memory of this is how I act when my house burns down. You know, this is what happens when we get locked down. This is what happens when um, I, our, our na nation faces a terrorist attack. Those are the muscle memories that are going to set you up um, to be more resilient, to be more agile, to be more positive. Um, and to be of greater service, you know, uh, in the future. And it's honestly what, you know, everything you just said about like going through these difficult moments 
and learning from them to be prepared because one of the, you know, something that we know is going to happen again is there will be more um, catastrophes in the future, right? There will be more natural disasters, whether it be a pandemic or earthquake or whatever. That's one thing we can count on this is how do we prepare ourselves now? Um, and Ayn Rand really does speak to that. You know, it's funny, I first heard of Ayn Rand my freshman year in a political ideologies uh, class. Wow. And, okay. Um, yeah, I know. I, I don't know if that's, that's common or not, but that's my first. That was my first time in her. And my professor talked about her briefly, watching clips, and it didn't really resonate me resonate with me at the time. And even though there's a lot of overlap, and I, you know, you can some people would call me a political wonk per se, but uh, I didn't really it didn't resonate with me until I later on. It was with Turning Point, actually. When I started working with Turning Point, I, started, I watched Alex Shrugged. And that was the first time that I really took interest in her novels. I was like, oh, okay, what, you know, sometimes you read, like, you watch the Harry Potter movie, and then you're like, okay, the book's always better. So that was, that was my mentality. So I went to go read the book, because I'm like, I love the concept of what she's trying to teach here in, in the movie. And that wasn't even her. It was, you know, obviously that was based off her novel. But what about, I think what sets Ayn Rand apart from other, um, other people, you know, other philosophers, great thinkers, you know, disruptors of the 20th century is her novels and her, her fictional novels of all things were what really took her message and disseminated it across the world. What about her fictional novels were so impactful? I completely agree with you on that. Um, and, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Jeffrey Tucker, said that before Ayn Rand, um, the, the fight for liberty uh, was merely in intellectual. And after Ayn Rand, it was deeply spiritual. Um, there's something, first of all, just about narrative. I mean, if you go back to our beginnings as a human race, um, we communicated information through stories, you know, through, through, through pictures, and a story paints a mental picture. Um, we, you know, it's one thing to just give information, this is the class, and this is what you need to learn, um, but it's, it's another thing to, to see it play out. In a, in a way where there is good, where there is evil. Um, and Ayn Rand's uh, novels were unique in that, um, that they, they had good guys, they had bad guys. Um, there was something at stake. It wasn't just your everyday thing. And um, a lot of the sort of postmodern li literature, eh, you know, there's kind of good guys, there's kind of bad guys. Also, you know, if we make it sort of murky and we just, put in a whole bunch of like words that people don't understand. You know, we muddy the waters to make them appear deep. Um, Ayn Rand's novels were deep, but they were also, they're also a lot of, of fun. Um, and, uh, and there's, you know, sex and there's, you know, there's business and there's um, bad guys, you know, masterminds trying to, to take people down. So, um, she uh, she integrated plot, and the plots are gr are great. She integrated um, the, the characters, and she integrated you know the themes, and um, 
so I think that's what makes them really mesmerizing. And, uh, you know, but they're not for everybody. You know, I, I, I kind of separate, there's two kinds of, um, of, of, of people when it comes to, let, let's say, Atlas Shrugged. Uh, there's the, the people that I meet that say, oh, you know, I read it, I couldn't get through it. And then there's the other kind of people like you and I that say, I started reading it and I, I couldn't put it, it, it down because it is, it's, it's, very, um, it's very suspenseful. And I am very proud of that project. That was one of the first initiatives that we did with um, Turning Point uh, that was uh, made possible by Diana Davis Spencer who um, who wanted, she loved the movies too, and she wanted to sponsor having the movie nights for um, for the, the Turning Point students. And I think uh, it, it it really uh, grabbed a lot of, of kids and it got them more interested in, in, in going deeper with well, the worked. ideas. It worked, because I mean, it, I mean. It worked I, for you. <laughs> yeah, it worked for me, I could speak to it, because uh, <laughs> it wasn't until I saw the movie that I was like, okay, I want to read the book. And then I really started to dive into Ayn Rand more, but it would have never happened if it wasn't for that opportunity because my professor did not, I don't think gave her a fair shake. And so didn't, and, yeah. and, which I'm is just- surprised. Why am I not yeah. surprised? <laughs> <laughs> which is why Turning Point exists on college campuses because yeah. it's so one-sided, the monologue. Uh, mm -hmm. It is a monologue, it's not dialogue, it's not diversity of thought. Um, right. Well, you know, in closing, uh, I really want to know, Jag, is, for someone like you, who's had such a successful career and been able to experience so much, and you know, I love your, your history. I mean, you're, you grew up um, in a Peace Corps family, right? Am I correct? In a Peace Corps yep. family. It just, Peace Corps. I mean, I'm in my parents' house now. Lockdown. <laughs> Lockdown uh, with liberals, whom yeah. I love. <laughs> In San Francisco. <laughs> in San Francisco, yeah. Your story is so unconventional. This is, this is a trigger. I, I think this is probably um, illegal in San Francisco. I just I just found out in San Francisco, uh, it is illegal to um, to sell these, and it's um, apparently probably also illegal to uh, promote capitalism. So. Good thing you're stuck inside, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, so you're, you're um, I guess you could say your story is very unconventional. So I want to know, for, for those that are listening, how did you encounter Ayn Rand? And when did it really become part of your life, right? Did, did, was there a time when you heard about it, but it wasn't really part of you? When did it really become part of you and why? Um, well, thanks for the question. And the story is actually um, encapsulated in our beta, very beta, first draw my life that I did as a total, you know, experiment as we were pioneering that um, that format. But um, I, I first actually I, I kind of really discovered Ayn Rand um, later, I guess, relatively later in in life. I was uh, at my twenties, in, in my twenties, and I was working at the Cato Institute, and um, I, you know, kind of around the proverbial. Uh, water cooler, I heard people talking about this guy, John Galt. And I was like, uh, who, you know, who, I asked somebody, who is John Galt? And they said, exactly. <laughs> um, and, I, and I was like, no, really, who, who, who's John Galt? 
And then they were like, oh, oh, you know, well, you actually have not, how did you even get in here that you don't know that? Um, and, uh, you know, here, take the book, go home. And, uh, you know, I really wouldn't recommend um, that you come back until you, you can answer this question. So um, I did, and I was definitely one of those people who uh, it just totally locked for me and made a lot of sense. And I ended up reading it um, <clears throat> over the course of a few days and then um, went on to read and reread everything else that she, uh, she wrote. And um, so looking back, you know, I, I think that for me, it really connected um, because I had been sent to, uh, to public schools um, at a time, you know, of, uh, of forced busing and um, in Massachusetts. It was a very liberal uh, school, it was a very liberal um, state. And I was, uh, I was, you know, I was different. I was, you know, it, it was born in India. I, you know, wore like sparkly, you know, before now everybody, all the kids wear the tiaras and the, you know, little tutus. I was doing that. I started that trend. No. Um, so, and I was very studious. I was really kind of interested and I was like, uh, wanted to study. I wanted to achieve. I was competitive. I wanted to get the best grades. And I um, found myself like on trial for being conceited. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I was really confused and I was like, what is, I don't even know what conceited is, but you know, if it meant that, you know, I thought highly of myself, I had self-esteem, then, you know, guilty as charged. So, um, so I, I, that I think experience made, had, had made it kind of made my mind fertile ground for Ayn Rand's message. Uh, of uh, if you are going to be cri criticized and penalized for achieving for your virtues, um, then uh, you don't have to just go along to get along. Uh, you can reject that. You can call that out, you know, as um, the evil that it is. And, uh, and, and you can live for yourself. And I, I think it also resonated as, as a woman. Um, because you know we are wired uh, differently than than men, we, and we are also uh, raised, you know, to to be nurturing, to to be more, you know, selfless, to put others um, before ourselves. My mother, who uh, you know was raised a Catholic, I think definitely, uh, and is a social worker, you know, definitely had that ingrained. And so, in to have boundaries, you know, to know that it was okay um, to put myself first. And that did not mean sacrificing other people to myself. That meant being, being of value, making alliances with like-minded people. I think that's why it really uh, resonated for me. And then when the crisis came, when I lost my job, you know, when I lost a relationship or two, uh, you know, when my house burned down, um, I, you know, I was prepared. I had the tools. I had um, the mental stamina, and I had the the, the logic and the reason. Um, in order to, to, to get through it and come out stronger on the other side. It's a beautiful story. Yeah, no, I've seen the, the novel. I've seen your, um, what, what do you call them, the sketch, sketch uh, videos? Oh, the, yeah, the Draw My Life. The Draw My Life. The drama yeah. of your past. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to hear it because. 
Well, you know, um, I have been uh, fortunate to host a few of, of the, the Turning Point um, leadership at my house. And so, um, but I, you have a standing invitation, Andrew. So after all of this is, is over, uh, we've got to get you and your family out to, uh, to Malibu. And, uh, and oh, especially the time of year when it's beautiful and everything's green and lush. Oh, I'd love to be there. <laughs> I'm sure I'll see you in, in Arizona before that. And I'll, um, I'll see you at the, at the next, when, when is the next conference that is on the schedule currently? So next conference that is on the schedule is our teenage, and that is in uh, DC, end yes. of July. Pending, you know, that everything, the, the Corona, you know, moves on this whole, you know, coronavirus and that we're able to get on with our lives without too many more casualties. But so that's still to that's still TBD. Uh, okay. we're, that's what we're playing on right now. Well, we will we will see you there. Um, and we will, you know, the turning point is, is going to survive and thrive. And so is the Atlas Society. And I'm very just grateful, tremendously grateful for our partnership and um, and your leadership. So thanks for joining me today.